0: Welcome to Every Block Rising. This podcast is dedicated to the realization that our world was imagined by someone and that we can imagine and build something much, much better for all of us. Let's imagine and create together. Hi, everyone. Thank you so much for coming to another episode of Every Block Rising. This is your host, Isa. Well, one of your hosts, Isa. And I am here with a very, very special friend. And I will pass it to you so you can tell us all the things about yourself, Francisco.
1: Hi, everybody. My name is Francisco Pedro. I am 33 years old and I live in Miami. And hi, Isa, thank you for having me here. First of all, I was born in 1988 in Sao Paulo, Brazil. It was a very important year for Brazil. That was the year that our constitution as a democracy was published. So I'm as old as Brazilian democracy officially. I came from a middle-class family and my uncles from both sides are lawyers And my parents were both ballet dancers, so one of the traumas in my life is that they're both professional dancers, yet I can't dance myself. I had a comfortable childhood, always in that threshold where my parents didn't have a lot of money necessarily, But my family was comfortable and my grandfather was a successful TV director. So we were still enjoying some benefits from his legacy. But then in the late 90s, Brazil was affected by a financial crisis that originated in Thailand. And because my mom remarried at the time, she married a Cuban saxophone player. He decided to move to Miami in 99 where there was a Cuban musician community and it would be better for him. So I came here when I was 11 years old and voluntarily, I didn't like the fact that it happened at the time (laughs) because I didn't speak English and I I thought I wouldn't be able to adapt. But yeah, I've been here ever since.
0: How was, thank you for sharing first. How was that transition? I know when we talk about You know, Latin America, we don't place the emphasis to Brazil that it needs. So I would like to know more about what democracy meant, what the Constitution did and what happened in Thailand in that time. And how did something so far away, right, in another continent crossing the the ocean affected, Mm -hmm. you know, our continent?
1: I was scared you were going to ask about Thailand. I'm not an expert in economics. That's astrology for men. And (laughs) I'm just like not that into it. But the constitution was actually very interesting. If you read the Brazilian constitution in 88, well, first context, Brazil had a military dictatorship, far right dictatorship from 1964 to around 1985. And from 85 to 88, there was a whole process of Establishing a new constitution, the Brazilian constitution is very progressive on paper. For example, I think it's the only constitution in the world at the time that established single payer healthcare and actually said that the Brazilian government is responsible for the well-being of the citizens for their health. So that's that's great. And Brazil to this day has, I think, the largest single payer healthcare system in terms of enrollment uh, in the world. It's not great; there are problems with it, but. The fact that the effort was there was cool. There was also an attempt to establish transparency. Like there are no top secret governments in Brazil. In theory, it's on paper. It's like a great screenplay that hasn't found a good director to bring it to life yet, if you want to think of it as a movie. But yeah, Brazil had only been a democracy for 10 years or 11 years around the time I came here officially. And we did have a center-left president at the time. His name was Fernando Henrique Cardoso who was better than what came before. I'm not not one of those people who deny that about the good things that he did. But at the same time, things weren't that great. You know, illiteracy was still high. And Brazil was in debt with the International Monetary Fund. And we were not doing well. My family wasn't doing well. We had been comfortable before. And because it was just, it just seemed like a good deal that because my stepfather was Cuban, that he would benefit from the wet foot, dry foot law. And we would be able to come here.
0: Can you explain throughout the, what you've been sharing about Brazil, there's center-left, left-right. Can you clarify what that means? Yes. And also, what is wet foot, dry foot?
1: <laughs> yes, thank you. Uh, well, wet foot, dry foot at the time benefited Cubans who were trying to come here, essentially. So like as long as you set foot on land in Florida, because there is a path in the sea from Cuba to Florida, you'd be able to stay here. And this was established for political reasons pretty much that it would look good for the U.S. if a lot of Cuban immigrants came here. Not denying their experience, you have every right to come here if you want to. I'm all for mobility. I'm all pro-immigration. Because my stepfather was Cuban, he was able to come here. He crossed the border. He was able to set foot in the U.S. And he, well, he didn't come by sea, sorry. He came by land. <laughs> he crossed the Mexican border. And it benefited my, my mom and I. We were able to come here because she was married to him, and that was my mom's child. The other question that you asked was about right, left, and center left. So when Brazil became a democracy, we had the first elections, I think, in a long time. So that was in 1989, right? So we had a conservative candidate named Fernando Collor de Melo, who was pro-business. He didn't side with dictators. You know, he didn't necessarily side with the far right. But this was someone who was pro-business and very anti-left. And then we had a leftist candidate named Lula da Silva, Luis Inácio Lula da Silva, who was, you know, pro-union. He was pro-workers' rights. He was pro-universal basic income. He had, like, a lot of, like, very radical ideas. And the Brazilian elite, the rich people in power, stopped him from becoming president at the time. It was very easy to manipulate the media back then. And then the conservative president that we got, Collor, he was impeached. He was removed from power because he had a lot of, he had a corruption scandal, a pretty big one. Around the time I came here, we had a center-left government. That was a government that was was in favor of some social policies, socialist policies. They were in favor of helping out people in need. But at the same time, they were still pro-business. They still sided with the conservative parliament in Brazil. They still sided with a lot of the financial interests of wealthy people. They didn't develop the country as much as they should have. When I left Brazil, Lula eventually won the presidency in 2002, he had a lot of radical ideas that he implemented. For example, he was big on education. He wanted because you can't really have a lot of wealthy people. Brazil does have wealthy people. It has good resources, but the country itself is not as developed as it should be. So he created a universal basic income system, which was the Bolsa Família. That said that if your child is going to school, your family will get a pension. Your family will get money every month. You know to buy food, to buy necessities, and that was a very big deal breaker in Brazil. That helped develop Brazil. It helped increase the literacy rate, for example, because right now it's in the 90s. When I lived in Brazil, it wasn't in the 90% range. I think it's 93% now. It did do a lot of good. And his party won four presidential elections in a row, which is very hard to do, very difficult to do. Like In America, the last time that happened was in the 40s, I think. So yeah, I hope that clarifies things.
0: Yes, thank you. How was your, your, because I am an immigrant too. I came here when I was in my late teens. How was that process of transition for you from Brazil
1: to here? Thank you for asking me that because I think you asked me that earlier and I forgot that you asked me. But yeah, Brazil is interesting because you did say it gets excluded from conversations about Latin American representation here in Florida. And, And yeah, we this might be a shock to a lot of people, but a lot of Brazilians don't consider themselves Latino. In fact, in Brazil, if you say Latino, they'll think you're talking about countries where people speak Spanish. And that's for, because of a lot of reasons, but pretty much, you know, Brazil has very good, has a very good relationship with the U.S. for better and worse. And Brazil looks up to the U.S. a lot. The most popular second language of Brazil is English, for example. Brazilians are way more interested in what's going on in the U.S. than the countries around them. They don't really know much about their Spanish speaking neighbors, for example. There are a lot of reasons for that that I, I, don't, I'll, I don't have enough time to get into now. When I came here, it was difficult for me because I still have what we Brazilians call complexo de vira lata, which a good translation would be like a straight dog complex, like Brazilians who automatically assume that everything in the US is better. Everything in the U.S. is cleaner. Everything in the U.S. Brazil compared to the U.S. is awful. I still had that in me like as a child. And I that when I came here and I saw all these things that I never saw in Brazil, you know, like there were less homeless people here, for example, compared to Brazil. There are still homeless people, of course. But so that to me was a big deal. The fact that, you know, all the streets were pavemented. I just I finally got to see all those like happy looking traditional suburbs that I saw in American movies. I finally got to experience that here. So yeah, I developed like this inferiority complex where I was like, okay, how, how exactly can I fit in? Also, most Americans didn't really know a lot about, didn't know as much about Brazil as Brazil knows about the average American, the life of the average American. When I would tell my classmates that I was from Brazil, they asked me a lot of offensive questions, <laughs> questions that at the time I laughed it off. But now that I think back, I'm like, okay, maybe you shouldn't have asked me that. They, I had a classmate ask me if I knew how to, uh, how to use a computer I had a classmate ask me if I lived in the Amazon rainforest, you know, questions like that. Eventually it was difficult. And then when I became like politically aware of who I was, I came here in 99, right? But by 2001 and 2003, we had September 11th and the Iraq war. So like when that happened, that's when I knew I didn't really relate to a lot of my classmates because my classmates, for example, in middle school, when we talked about this in social studies class, everybody was for the Iraq war invasion. I, I was the I was one of the three kids in the class who was against it, who were against it. And I remember we had pens thrown at us. That's how big the uh, patriotic spirit was at the time. So that's why, like, when, when people talk about indoctrinating children into your political ideology, like, I, I don't think I had any adults in my house indoctrinating me. As far as I remember, I knew that I didn't support these things from a very young age. And I knew I wasn't like a lot of my classmates.
0: What was the time where you're like, yeah, this is not okay. (laughs) Like the way people perceive the world in the United States and Mm -hmm. the way like politics and politics is just like everything around us, right. That has to do with the government and how the government by default is supposed to protect us and our needs. And, you know, when was the time that you realized, oh shit. Yeah, this is not supposed to be like this. Was it in middle school or was it older? I think
1: we start realizing these things from a very young age. One of my favorite movies, for example, is called, it's a Spanish movie from the 70s. It's called The Spirit of the Beehive. It's about a seven-year-old girl who realizes that her family is fascist for Franco, for Francisco Franco in in Spain. What Uh, Can
0: you explain what fascist means?
1: Well, yeah, far right. (laughs) That's usually the political ideology that sides with the interests of rich people and that demonizes anyone that doesn't side with that. You know, if you're you're against that idea, you're usually persecuted and socially excluded. And that's a very broad definition. But in Spain, it happened around the time um, in the 40s when the Civil War ended. So just to clarify, in this movie, this seven-year-old girl who's not really politically conscious of anything... She realizes that she's not fascist because she attends a screening of the movie Frankenstein, the horror movie, Frankenstein. And the whole audience is scared of the monster, all the kids. She identifies with the monster. She leaves the screening, wondering about the monster. She starts asking like her sister, "Oh, you know, like what what is it about this monster? Like why do people not like him?" And then she starts questioning why. Are the people fighting against the fascist government being demonized that way when she finally meets a soldier who's fighting against them? And I love that movie because I also really love horror movies when I was little. And I and I do think that's something that I identified with. You know, a lot of times you do identify with the villains and the monsters. And why are they being portrayed that way? I always knew that I was different when I was little. I knew, I knew that I was queer, for example. I knew that I, I didn't side with the kids who were obsessed with soccer in school who made fun of me. And yeah, and that whole intense feeling of patriotism where you're willing to support your country invading a foreign nation that you know almost nothing about <laughs> because people in power will benefit from it. That is a value that I know I didn't share and that was not okay. And that eventually transferred into other scenarios, into other you know ideas that I had. I did not have a lot of friends in middle school here. And I remember the Iraq war being like a big reason. I know, I know it's middle school and you don't think about these things, but when a lot of younger people today don't realize how How alienating that time was, how, you know, everybody had an American flag after 9-11, like around their porch, you know, and I could uh, completely understand that we were attacked. But the ideas that came after that, you know, the Patriot Act, you know, that that turned the country into a surveillance state, almost how most Americans supported that the Iraq war invasion. The
0: Patriot Patriot Act is when they can check your information without your consent, right?
1: Yeah, pretty much. Yeah. Yeah. Everybody who was against the government interfering in a private life magically became for it. (laughs) So it was, yeah, it was a scary, it was a very scary time to be, to become politically conscious. Then when you get into high school, I feel then your social studies teachers, they start explaining these things better to you and they start, you know, they eventually draw charts on the board saying, you know, if you're a radical, you're here. If you're a leftist, you're here. If you're a right winger, you're here. And then you choose your own adventure in a way. <laughs> right.
0: When did you realize that you had the power to change the world around you?
1: So I always wanted to vote, for example, because I wasn't a US citizen. I became a US citizen late compared to when I came. Yeah, I became a US citizen in my early 20s. I feel it took me, yeah, it took me almost 12 years to become a citizen. When I became a citizen, I really wanted to vote. That was like a big deal for me. I really wanted to participate in this process. And that goes back to the straight dog complex that I had. I didn't know how difficult voting is here compared to like a lot of other countries. And I'll give an example. In Brazil, when we became a democracy, it became established that voter registration would happen automatically at the age of 16. If you turn 16 in Brazil, you're automatically registered to vote.
0: 16? Uh, My God.
1: No yeah and that, and in Brazil for example you can vote from prison <laughs> in Brazil and there's the because we knew because Brazil had a history of voter suppression for example like in the 60s and the 50s if you were if you didn't know how to read you wouldn't be able to vote and that was a way to keep you know illiterates from voting it was a way to keep it was a, it was a way it was class warfare pretty much it was a way to keep the lower classes from having power and from people who were at the bottom from reaching the top because there was this big emphasis on establishing a democracy and not having those things happen again that was established it seems like a radical idea here but to me when i was growing up it wasn't it was it was pretty much automatic that you had to vote once you turned 16 for me and yeah when i realized that that wasn't the case here when i began you know reading news stories regarding the 2008 election the 2012 election how florida took forever for example to declare the winner in the 20 20- 12 election, because voting was made harder in a lot of ways. It is a way to keep a lot of people from the ballot box. So voting, there we go. I really wanted to vote. That was one way. I began getting politically involved in 20, more politically involved in 2015. I feel like, because I was in between jobs at the time. I used to work in artistic events, more specifically film festivals. And I had, I saw an ad saying, if you believe in marriage equality, please come get a canvassing job. I didn't quite know what canvassing was. I knew they were the clipboard people, you know, who talk to you in the street when you walk by. But I thought it would be a good job to have. In- so that
0: you became a clipboard person? I became a
1: clipboard <laughs> person. And I was good at it. And it, it was the first job that I had that I really felt I was good at it. I know it. And I know it's partially a delusion because we all have imposter syndrome, but I always thought, okay, this isn't a job where I'm just answering emails all day. You know, it's a job where it, it's based on results. And I get good results. So if I'm good at this, if I'm good at fighting for marriage equality and, you know, a few weeks after I joined the campaign, marriage equality passed. I'm not saying that I was the straw that broke the camel's back, but that did motivate me. to. Well,
0: maybe you were.
1: (laughs) Maybe I was. Maybe I was. So I began canvassing for other organizations. So I canvassed for the ACLU, I canvassed for Planned Parenthood, I canvassed for the Southern Poverty Law Center and As I went along, eventually I became began directing campaigns. I directed campaigns all throughout the 2016 cycle, including here in Florida. I ran a campaign office, a canvassing office on behalf of fighting Donald Trump. After that, I realized that I had to change what I was doing with my life because I I, I felt irresponsible to have these skills and not use them. So that's when I began focusing on finding a political home, establishing myself like at a place. I chose Miami because that's where I grew up. I was fortunate enough to find a job, a canvassing job here and move back here four years ago. But yeah, if you have, if you have a set of skills that you can use for a particular cause, I do think it's the most responsible thing to do. You should use them.
0: Yeah. Thank you. So we've been talking a lot about things that we are opposed to. What do you actually want your world and your block to look like? If you could change the world by tomorrow, what would this world and and block community have?
1: No borders. I would love a world with open borders where people can come and kind of go wherever they please, where you don't depend on having a good passport, for example, because I have a US passport. I can go to a lot of places that someone with even a Brazilian passport can't go, for example. I would love a world that accepts and supports LGBTQIA people. I don't support gay imperialism, for example. That's when you take actions against a country only on the basis that they don't support queer rights. I don't think that's the answer. I think we need to uplift those nations in other ways. I would love for my block, in particular. I live in Miami Beach, for example, so I would love for transportation and parking here to be better. and that goes to a lot of Florida. I don't think you should be forced to have a car to be happy and whole. but unfortunately in Florida, that's not the situation. And here in in at the beach, we did have a trolley system that worked, but when the pandemic happened, for example, that trolley became began coming less and less <laughs> less often. If someone knows what happened to the Collins Express trolley please contact me cuz like I, I really that really made my life a lot better. There would be more participation in elections and assemblies. There would be motivation for everyone to join them. You know, there would be gatherings and arts festivals happening with high attendance and the beach would be accessible to everyone. There would be no private beaches.
0: How do we get there? I love how, before we I ask you that question, I love how you mentioned your local area, your neighbors, right? Yep. The place that you live at. Mm-hmm. I feel like every time I have a conversation with somebody, they focus on the broad and the global, mm-hmm. right? Like clean water or like solar energy. Mm-hmm. And I love how you mentioned a specific issue that is happening in your neighborhood. So how do we get there?
1: That's a good question. So when we... When my family moved here, I did notice that we didn't talk to our neighbors very often. And I didn't really grow up with a sense of community because of that. When I hear about people who've lived in the same block their whole lives and all their neighbors know them, <laughs> they have like this sense of community around the block. I get so, I, I don't want to say envious, but yeah, like I that's that's a there's a part of me that wished I had that childhood. I think in Latin America, especially, we grew up watching El Chavo de Ocho. For those who don't know, that's a sitcom that takes place around a block and we want to have... That sense of community. I think, for example, if you want the block to look like what I described, if you can, you should be able to use public services. I try to take public transportation as much as possible. When you tell upper class people this in Miami, they already start setting up a GoFundMe account to you. They they ask you if everything's okay. But I actually do enjoy Using public transport, I always have. And I try to use the trolley as much as possible. Now that the trolley is not as common, I try to walk. If you can walk somewhere and you can be there within 15 minutes to 30 minutes by foot and you're able to do it, you should do it. If you have a political home, for example, that's also good. Find your political home. It's important. Get involved. Definitely vote, of course, but your political involvement should not end up voting, in my opinion. You know, Find out what the local issues are around your area. Find out who the representatives are. Find out who your senators are. Be aware of what's going on around you.
0: Yeah, I love that. I love how it shouldn't end at voting. And also voting is such like a pivotal part Mm -hmm. of how everything around us move. Mm -hmm. For example, the streets that we walk on. That has to do with how we vote, right? And the people representing us, the type of schools that your kids go to, how legislation is going to affect what you can do or cannot do with your body, right? And so I love that. I love that. And locally, there's also places that you can vote and participate. Like at Florida Rising, we have people's assemblies where the neighbors come together to say, you know what, this is is not okay. What can we do about that? So thank you so much, Francisco, for sharing that. Mm -hmm. And the last question, well, I'm going to ask you two more questions because I know you're a film person Mm -hmm. and I would love to dive a little bit deeper on that. If you had access to a billboard in your block that people, you know, who went to work and school could see it at a peak hour of the day, what would that billboard say and why?
1: never let the fact that they're doing it wrong stop you from doing it right
0: say that one more time for me
1: never let the fact that they're doing it wrong stop you from doing it right
0: can you explain that that seems like a good one.
1: (laughs) Well, yeah if everyone if you're in a situation where everyone around you is making the wrong choice you know either morally or politically you know that shouldn't stop you from doing it right of course there are I know there are times and places where you doing the right thing might not be beneficial to you and you don't want to suffer retaliation. But that is something that I always knew. Uh, It wasn't popular, for example, for me in middle school to be against the Iraq war. You know, it wasn't popular for me to be against things that I did not think were okay. in a lot of ways. It wasn't popular in my family, for example, for me to support Lula for president in Brazil. <laughs> so yeah, but don't let that stop you from doing the right thing because it's worth it. It can reward you in the long run and your community.
0: At 100%. And what are some film recommendations that you have for people who want to get a little bit deeper into like the political? It could be Brazil. It could be here in the United States. It could be the intervention of the United States and Latin America. Like what are some top films that you would recommend?
1: So this is great because when I, I didn't learn about any of this in school, but I don't, you came from Chile, you might have, but like I, in in the U.S., you don't really learn about U.S. intervention in Latin America when you go to high school, at least I didn't. Uh, so I learned, for example, about Chile because I watched Machuca. Uh, it's a movie from 2004, I think, directed by Andres Wood about Chile during the Allende during the Salvador Allende presidency. I learned about Chile also from watching Missing. A movie, I've shown that to you already. But yeah, it's a movie from 1982, directed by Costa Gavras. Costa Gavras, sorry. I learned about unions, for example, by watching Norma ray That's a movie from 1979, directed by Martin ridge uh, It's a true story of a woman who unionized the cotton factory, the textile factory that she worked at in the South. In If you want to know more about Latin America, the political situation, their political history in the 20th century, The Official Story, it's an Argentinian movie from 1985, directed by Luis Cuenzo. That one's very good. If you want to learn about the situation in Brazil, there's a very good Brazilian movie from 2005 called The Year My Parents Went On Vacation by, I think his name is Callen Burger. That's the director. It's about a kid whose parents go away for vacation and he slowly realizes that his parents are not gone for vacation. They're running away from the military back in the 70s. Very good movie. If you want to know, I already recommended The Spirit of the Beehive, for example. That's a Spanish movie, a very good anti-fascist Spanish movie. My favorite anti-colonial movie is The Battle of Algiers. That's a movie about how the uh, the Algiers resistance defeated the French army back in the 50s. It was one of the major anti-colonial victories of the 20th century. It's a great movie, and it was actually made in Algiers with members of the resistance advising the movie and in America if you want to focus here one of my favorite movies with a good political cause of the last 10 years was Sorry to Bother You directed by Boots Riley Um, that is
0: a great movie
1: oh yeah that was really good yeah it's pretty much starts off criticizing the phone salesman market and it becomes something else entirely I don't want to spoil it And of course, a classic, I love Do the Right Thing by Spike Lee from 1989. That's a movie that deals with racial tensions in Brooklyn, New York, and it has lost none of its power ever since.
0: Look at us. We have a whole month long movie recommendation list. Thank you so much, Francisco, for being here today. Do you have any last words for listeners?
1: Last words. I really enjoy this. Thank you so much for having me here. Of course. Looking forward to listening to this podcast.
0: Yes. Thank you so much for all the people at home. Make sure that you check out our website for more information and it's a wrap. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much for tuning into this episode. We appreciate you. If you haven't done so already, be sure to subscribe and leave a review wherever you listen to your podcast. If you like the show and would like to support us, make sure to go to floridarising.org and become a member. Until next time.